Today is International Childhood Cancer Day, and we've got a very special episode with the fellas over at Sick Boy, where we chat about what it's like to be an oncology parent and how as soon as our kids are diagnosed, we get thrown into the depths of the ocean and we have to learn really quick how to breathe underwater, how to become a fish. So let's dive deep with Sick Boy. My name is Sam Taylor. I'm the parent to a childhood cancer survivor and the host of the Deep Sea Podcast, where we come together to talk to parents, caregivers, friends, and professionals who have been affected by childhood cancer. Hearing your child has been diagnosed can feel a lot like being ripped from life on land to suddenly being submerged deep into the ocean. It's disorienting, it's scary, and sometimes it's really hard to breathe. This podcast is for all of us who have supported a child through their diagnosis. It's where we'll come together to share the skills and coping strategies that have made it a little easier for us to breathe down here. But it's also a place for us to connect, to feel heard, to find support, and to swim each other to shore. So let's dive deep. Today is a special episode in honor of International Childhood Cancer Day, where the entire childhood oncology community gathers to raise awareness for kids who are in treatment, for kids who are fighting so hard in relapse, for kids who are NED, and kids who won't be here for their next birthday. Today is for them, and it's also for us, the parents and the caregivers who are blazing trails while we run, walk, sometimes crawl our kids through treatment. So many of you are in deep right now. You're sitting bedside, memorizing every single feature on your baby's face, while you're also advocating and lobbying, raising money and awareness for the lack of funds our government allocates to pediatric oncology. But also, by the way, if today you are in the fetal position because the pain is so bad, it's for you too. You are recognized today too. It's for all of us. And as sad and unfair as it is that a day like today even exists, it does. And so we fight for the kids who haven't been diagnosed yet. And we make room at the table for the parents still to come so that when they arrive, they have it a bit better and easier, the same way parents for decades have been doing for us. So because most of our episodes on the deep sea just naturally cover childhood cancer awareness, I thought it would be cool to share a conversation that I had with the fellas over at Sick Boy, a hugely successful podcast hosted by Jeremy, Brian, and Taylor, who also go deep into subjects about health and disease and what it's like to live in the dark part of the ocean. We talk about being a cancer parent, what it's like to learn how to survive down here and what it feels like for us to watch our kids go through the battle of their lives. Jer, Brian, and Taylor have had hundreds of conversations with caregivers And they always find a way to highlight the heroic and selfless acts that typically go unnoticed. 
So today on International Childhood Cancer Day, I hope my conversation with them makes you feel noticed and represented. I hope that by telling my story, you hear yours so that it's not just one voice speaking at a time, but all of our voices speaking together. So let's dive deep with Sick Boy. Holy shit, guys. This is, uh, I know I always say this, like, oh, I'm so excited for today's recording, um, which is like, it, it, to be honest with you. This time you're telling the truth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, to be honest with you, that typically just comes out of my mouth as like, it's be, it's like the habit of like the, the host habit that I've developed. Um, but I got to make a statement here and put a, 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 a just really bold this statement and maybe italicize and fuck, oh. who knows? You know what? Fuck it. Let's underline, underline it too. Whoa. <laughs> uh, you know what? Fuck it. Let's change Holy it to shit. a t- to a heading one. Whoa, um, dude. Google Docs. Please. I am <laughs> fucking so stoked for this conversation because we get to sit down with um, with someone who, Sam, I, I, I really do mean this. One of the people that I have met in my life that I haven't talked to in years, but think of all of the time, someone who truly has like stuck with me since I've met them and someone who I, I think is, I mean, you know, Sam, you're the type of person that when you meet someone new, I would be absolutely fucking gobsmacked to find out that whoever ever meets you doesn't feel like you are one of the most incredible people. And you, you said you were. You, and you said you were a connector. Like you said that your purpose in life is to be a connector. And and, yeah. and for everybody out there who's listening, uh, when when we met way back, 12, 13, 13 Taylor years also ago, knows Sam here. I also know yep. Sam. Yep. You 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 played a role in connecting Jeremy and I as best friends. Yep. And ultimately business partners, helping connect me with my wife and now right. my the mother of my children. Uh, it's a big deal. Yeah. So <laughs> so for context, folks, uh, Sam Taylor is a mother um she's also the host of the recently launched deep sea podcast um and uh and like taylor just said sam's also the person that was that bared witness bore witness (laughs) to uh to the to the inception of our friendship to the inception of taylor's uh taylor's now now uh, wife and marriage, or I guess he doesn't get married, whatever. That's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> um, but also, uh, you know, best friends with my sister-in-law um, and and was was the one who was facilitating the yoga teacher training that brought Taylor and I together. And, uh, and Sam, we're so happy to have you on the podcast today because uh, as of late, we've been really interested in having conversations that pertain to the role of the caregiver. And this is the role that you have recently stepped into. And we're so, so grateful to have you on the show to get into this. So, Sam, thank you so much. Welcome to the show. And I know that was a big, long fucking introduction, but please take a moment, introduce yourself to our listeners so that they get an idea of who Sam Taylor really is. Okay, before I introduce myself, I want to just tell you that I have this superpower that I don't actually tell a lot of people about, but I kind of keep it to myself. But I am going to tell you both right now, the three of you right now. Here's my superpower. I have this ability that I will remember the second, like the minute second, the setting, the smell in the air, what I was wearing. When I meet people 
who I'll never forget. No way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, I mean, how many people do we meet in a day? Tons, right? right? Throughout your life, tons. But I have this like superpower that the people who will stay in my life forever, I remember the second I met them. And you two, Brian, I will never forget this moment, by the way. Let me just put that aside. I will never forget meeting you. And I know that for a fact. But Jer and Taylor, I remember exactly where we are. I already knew Jer, but I remember when the two of you met on that hammock in the Brazilian jungle. I can tell you what the tide was like. I can tell you what our hair was Uh. like, every single thing. Yeah. And it just goes to prove that we're supposed to stay together forever because I remember that exact second that I met you guys. So that's not the most important thing about me, but it's one thing for sure to get a little bit more broad. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a mom. I'm a bunch of things. We all have tons of identifiers that we pick up along the way. Right. But the, Main ones these days would be mom and yeah, yoga instructor, writer, um, and cancer mom. That Ooh. that started uh, in the summer of 2022. So that has kind of been the most prominent label, I guess you could say, that has really taken over. And uh, and so that's how I'm leading these days, mainly because it's impossible not to. It takes mm-hmm. over your entire your entire world. Mm-hmm. How many kids do you have, Sam? I've got two kids. Um, I have a daughter, Ellie, who is 12. She is my, she's my daughter who was diagnosed a couple years ago. And I have a little guy named Oakley and he's 10. And I believe when Ellie was in your belly. Yes. You like that? We, um, <laughs> that she almost got rattled out of your belly on a, the back of a Jeep driving to the jungle <laughs> in Brazil. Yeah. It when was a Taylor rough and I met each other. It was a rough yeah. ride. I remember yeah. that drive in and I was looking at you, you and you were like, you know, you, you had a belly. Uh, yeah. And I think you literally said like, oh, fuck, guys. I think I think I think, <laughs> I think that it's ride, it. I think it's I think, here. Yeah. <laughs> I think that ride just uh, kind of expedited the process here. That's right. That's right. That was one of the jobs. I ran the teacher trainings for yeah. our yoga studio. Mm-hmm. And there we were in like the most random like jungle, not just like cute jungle, like deep, jungle, deep jungle. jungle. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? There was this woman who lived on this kind of commune in the jungle that we were in, and she would read your future. She would Mm. tell you all about your future. And I went and saw her and her eyes were closed the entire time. Like she wouldn't open them and she would just sense your being. And I remember she, I sat down beside her. She hadn't opened her eyes. She told me I was pregnant, which yes, I was. And she said, you are going to have a daughter and she's going to be remarkable. She is going to be remarkable. And I just remember thinking, okay, I, I, can, I can deal with remarkable. I think that's <laughs> a pretty good word to start with. So, um, and she turned out to be. She is remarkable. She's, she's in a pretty incredible kid. Mm-hmm. Not, to, um, not to like jump right into the cancer diagnosis, Let's because jump. I'm sure there's lots that happened in between, but I, I think one of the things that's really hard to wrap your head around is as somebody without kids and who hasn't dealt with, you know, having someone in your life that's that's younger than you that, you know, goes from being like a healthy individual to someone who is sick. I'm I'm really curious about what that experience is like. Um, having this child that's born, I think of it and and this is a bad um analogy or reference, but it's my point of reference, which is having a dog. And mm-hmm. When I have my my dog and he goes through the first year of his life, I'm 
I'm like kind of looking for things that like, you know, might be wrong with him. Like every, you know, time he sleeps too long or every time he doesn't eat, I'm like, oh, oh my God. Like is, was he born with something that, you know, I'm going to have to take him to the vet and is going to be a, a problem or a challenge for me. And like every little thing is sort of scary. But then when he gets into, you know, like his second year of life and he's like pretty healthy, then you just start to think like, oh, I have a normal dog and he's going to live a long and healthy life. Um, I'm curious what it's like to have a child who's not sick. And then all of a sudden at this point when they're like just getting into like the age of their life where they're like starting to think about what they might want to do down the road or like becoming this like full fledged human being. What's it like to see them go from that to somebody who gets diagnosed with something like cancer? Such a good question. The answer is this. It feels like one minute you are living on land, you're on earth, you are in your natural environment, you can breathe the air, you can, you know, connect with the people in your world. And then the minute your child is diagnosed with cancer, without any warning, without any preparation, you are thrown into the bottom of the ocean and you can't breathe underwater. You can't swim. You can't see. It is so disorienting and uh, unrelatable. So you can't connect to anybody in your world anymore because they don't live underwater anymore. They're still up there on land. And it feels like you are going to die. Mm-hmm. And and there's times that I think a lot of parents would say they would like to because the shock and the ripping of out of your out of your your life into this place you don't want to be is awful. Mm-hmm. What, what is like when I'm a I'm a relatively new parent and so like what you were saying there Brian I had a, I had I had a question that was like a, a very much along the similar lines there in the in the sense that when I think about when I think about the potential for something to arise with Zay's health I think about like how she can't communicate with me very well right. to to describe how she how she's feeling like you've got to take a lot of you know signals and habits like very similar to a dog like how are they sleeping how are they eating what's their poop like all that stuff yeah um I'm curious like how in the time like leading up before the diagnosis actually came um how like how 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 did the communication how was the communication and what kind of like unfolded there for you as a parent to be able to kind of filter through, like, what are the things that, what are the feelings and things that a kid who's, um, I suppose at the time, like 10 or 11, that they're feeling that's like, that, that, that you could very easily pass off as normal. Or, you know, this is something that, you know, that maybe you're just a little bit sick. Maybe you have the flu, maybe you have this, maybe you have that. Versus the things that, that are kind of signaling that there's something, there's a deeper, there's a deeper issue going on under the surface? Another incredible question. And I hate to give you this answer because it's just going to throw off every alarm bell in every parent's mind, but there was no sign, zero sign. I'm talking the healthiest, most energetic, most full of life kid you've ever, ever met. Now that's not always the case. 
And a lot of the parents that I talk to, their children definitely do have more telltale signs, you know, uh, bruises, fevers, dizziness, vomiting, those things 100% happen in a lot of kids who are just about to be diagnosed. With my daughter, it was a bump on her face. That Mm. was it. And it was in her nasal fold. And it looked just kind of like a little cyst. It was so benign. It was nothing. And she just didn't like the way it looked. So I took her to our GP. Ah, it's nothing. It's a lipoma. Don't worry about it. We left. And then it kind of started to get funny looking. And not because she has any vanity. She was 10 years old. But it was more just that she didn't like the way it looked. It kind of interfered with her face. So I actually just booked an appointment with a plastic surgeon to have it removed. And thinking like nothing. Nothing in a million years. There was not one sign. Thank God it was on the front of her face because Mm. with her cancer, which by the way is called rhabdomyosarcoma, it's a soft tissue cancer. So like Terry Fox had osteosarcoma, Mm -hmm. you know, sarcoma of the bone. Ellie's sarcoma is soft tissue. So it shows up in a lot of kids' faces, uh, their orbital area, their genitals, their bladder, like Mm. lots of different places where there's soft tissue. Thank God hers was smack dab in the middle of her face because otherwise we Mm. would have never thought to get it removed. And so it was actually a plastic surgeon who took it out, did a standard biopsy, totally normal. And then a couple of weeks later when the biopsy came back, he called us in and did one of those like, hey, mom, can I talk to you out in the hall for a second? While he was checking her scar to make sure it was healing okay. And he took me out in the hall and said the biopsy came back a little funny. I'm going to send it off for more tests. And that was the moment where the air in the room changed. Did I think cancer? Mm. No. But something comes over you where it's that nervous feeling like that, oh, dear, Mm -hmm. this isn't normal. And shortly after that, she was officially diagnosed. So there were no signs, Taylor. Like, I wish I could say because of all of the catastrophic thinkers out there, parents all do that. We all are constantly worried. Some And dog owners, by the way, I have three dogs. They are my children. So I totally get it. <laughs> uh, we're always thinking something is going to happen. And when it finally does, it's, um, it's, it's a bit of a shock. Yeah. Right. It, no matter it, how much you think about it, no matter, you know, no matter how much you like mentally prepare that that could be coming. It's, it's like, it's like death, you know, it's like I, I, you know, I think about death all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm like familiar with the idea of death. I've gone through grief, but it never gets easy when, you know, whenever someone right. dies in your life, it's never like, well, I was ready for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I prepped. Right. When, yeah. It's and always, when it, com- it's and when it comes, hard. which inevitably will, it will be a surprise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For the most, for the, you know, most of the time. Yeah. Right. Sam, when, when the, when the, um, doctor pulled you out in the hall and, and told you that and, and like things kind of changed, but you didn't know quite yet that it was cancer. Um, how did you handle your emotions going back into that room and, and talking to Ellie? Did you tell her anything at that point? I didn't at that point because I had to gather myself, you know, like I, I, it hadn't hit. And I got home, told my husband the biopsy looked funny, and he's a very internal processor. I'm a very external processor. He didn't say much. I called everyone I knew. Mm. And there was no reason, there was nothing to start Googling. There was nothing to start. It was just, 
a funny looking biopsy. So I'm thinking, you know, some kind of weird cyst. I didn't know. And finally he called me back with our GP. There was more of like a conference call and, uh, confirmed that it was cancer. And that moment was a fracture and it was like everything in life before was now before cancer and everything from that second moving forward was going to be a life where my daughter has cancer and that fracture is fast and it's sudden and it 100% splits your life in two. Mm -hmm. I imagine like one of the really hard aspects about that is processing that yourself and then also going, Oh shit. Like we have to talk to her about it, you know, being a 12 year old, like old enough to understand, but also, you know, probably at, this point, at ways, this point, 10, yeah. 10, yeah. 10, sorry. Yeah. And, and so what, like how, how did you navigate sort of processing that yourself and being that, support person for your daughter guys your questions are like 10 out of 10 these are so <laughs> good well to answer that i'd never you don't process it mm. you can't there's no time what happens is this and any parent every parent will tell you when something traumatic happens to their child we as parents have this hidden reservoir of strength we don't know it's there and when something like a cancer diagnosis happens to your child, this reservoir just floods your body with strength and you somehow figure out a way to do the impossible. And so when, you know, people always say to you, oh, I don't know how you do it. I could never do that. I can't imagine. Yeah, you could totally do it. Everyone can do it because you have this reservoir. You just don't know it's there. And so that wash comes over you and somehow you hear the words coming out of your mouth to your 10 year old child, you have cancer. You can't possibly imagine what that would be like, but I can promise you with every fiber of my body, I promise you that every parent has this. So while you think these things would be impossible to do, they aren't. It's like the, it's like the, the, you know, if you if you asked my mom if she could lift a car, she would go, "Of course not." That's what but I was thinking. But if a car of. ran me over, my mom my, my mom would pick that motherfucking car up and throw it down Riverside Drive. Like correct, you know. It, it makes me. Think, she didn't know um, she had it in her until I was under it. It makes me think about how it makes me think of like when I'm in a dream, and mm-hmm. I'm like in a scenario that I am comfortable with, and I've been in this whatever the scene is of my dream. And then, you know, sometimes your dream just like changes and all of a sudden you're like, I'm in a sex you're like, dream. You're like, I'm in a new, like, I'm in a new place all of a sudden. And it's like, <laughs> why are my and, pants off? And, and everybody's like, naked. And your, and your, your brain is like, holy <laughs> shit, I've just entered into this new realm and I have no idea yeah. how to manage it. But then like somehow in this weirdness of a dream, you're just like, okay, like I'll just move forward and just like progress. And then, and then within, within I like better a facilitate moments, this orgy. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, within, <laughs> within a moment, you're just, you're now all of a sudden yeah. you've like this weird new paradigm has just like become your normal all of a sudden. Yeah. But you've had this, you had this moment of being like, of like that you felt like you were just thrown in the deep end. It makes me think of like mm. that feeling. Right. Um, of how like, absolutely on a dime, you just get mm. this shift. You've nailed it. That's exact. That is the exact description. It's like, 
you, you see yourself all of a sudden in this nightmare. What was once was a second ago, a nice dream. Now it's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And it takes your brain like one second to catch up, but your body's already adapting. And that's what happens. Mm. You, you figure it out. And I have had conversations with parents whose children have had treacherous treatments. I've had conversations with bereaved parents. They'll all tell you that despite the outcome of their child's treatment, they had that strength. They found it and mm. they survived it. Mm. Do you, do you, I, have you had conversations with parents where, um, cause I feel like my, I feel like my wife and I, um, differ in this sense quite a bit where she is, uh, she has more of a, she has more of an emotional capacity, um, which then can also, which, which clouds her pragmatism and then vice versa for me, like my pragmatism can cloud my emotional capacity. Um, do you, is have you talked to anybody uh, or seen like an experience where where it feels like actually getting to that place where you're ready to like take action and move forward is a real struggle for somebody because they get so caught up in the in that feeling of drowning like they it's hard for them to get past that feeling that they cannot process cannot move forward it's both there's you 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 experience both. There's sometimes where you just act and you aren't thinking about anything. You just respond. It's a very intrinsic like uh action. Mm-hmm. And then there are times where you are paralyzed. Yeah, you're paralyzed with fear. And as a matter of fact, uh someone we all know, Tara Tara McLean, a dear friend of all of ours, she's one of my best best friends. I called her during Ellie's treatment when I felt that paralysis. I was so scared that Ellie was going to die. And by the way, a lot of families, when their children are going through treatment, have to mentally prepare for that. You know, we write eulogies, we plan funerals. It sounds really morbid, but it's a coping strategy that you have to do in order to, you know, make sense of what's going on. And I was having one of those days where I was just at the bottom of the ocean, dark, dark, dark. And I told Tara that I felt like I was drowning. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. And she said to me, well, then, in her very like Zen way, which we all know she has, she said, you have to become a fish. You have to grow gills and you have to grow fins and you have to get swimming because that's how you'll save your daughter. And she also told me that while you are down in the ocean, turning into a fish, that I had to find the other fish down there, the other parents in the same situation, because then we'll save each other. And that's what I did. I adapted to my new environment and I turned myself into a fucking fish and I was a fish for the entire time. And it helped me move. Mm. So the paralysis was now over and now there was momentum. Which is where the Deep Sea podcast comes in. Um, I would love to dive into the Deep Sea uh, a little bit more later. But before we do, just for, you know, just for context for for us and for our listeners, um, I'd love to hear more about the, the actual kind of journey and process that you went through um, as you guys navigated Ellie's cancer and treatment and all those things, 
Um, but, but first, just a quick question. So, um, um, uh, rhabdomyosarcoma, first time yeah. I've heard of it. Um, mm-hmm. Again, Me uh, too. It, so what I gather here is that it is cancer that is specific to the soft tissue. So we're talking like, like muscle, tendon, um, um, uh, like those, those types of things where it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, cartilage, that kind of thing. So not, not necessarily bone, but, but right. the soft tissue. Okay. Um, is that a, is that specifically, or I guess not specifically, but is that typically a, a, ch- uh, like a child cancer? Yeah. Yes, it, absolutely. Okay. Adults do get it. Okay. Okay. Adults do get it for sure, but it is 100% a way more common, way more common in children. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, I guess, I guess where, you, you know, to start this, to start this sort of like this chapter off, um, when you find out that that Ellie has this diagnosis, what is your you know once the dust settles, what was your process of going of trying to educate yourself, or did you even have the space to take that on like like did you are you the type of person that's like all right well now I guess i gotta be uh, I gotta become a rhabdomyosarcoma expert uh today um or you know what did that look like for you? Yeah. So like I said, I'm an external processor. So as soon as she was diagnosed, I started, I got on the phone and it wasn't so much that I wanted to know the ins and outs of the actual disease of the actual type of cancer. It was more that I needed to get my bearings in this new world. So what does chemo, what does, what's chemo like? What's radiation like? What's like, so my first reaction was to just gather a community of other parents who'd also gone through childhood cancer. And honestly, one of the most helpful places that I personally went to was actually a rhabdomyosarcoma Facebook group. Mm. I'm not on Facebook a lot, but this group saved my butt. Like it's, parents from all over the world who are now speaking my very specific, unique language, like chemo cocktails that are only for rhabdo radiation, you know, that's only for rhabdo. So it became a place where I could do like a crash course in what was going on because I found that speaking to the oncologists, you're not getting, you're getting tons of information. I mean, they are phenomenal, but it's science talk, right? Mm -hmm. I needed to hear from other parents Like what creams do you put on the radiation burn? What do you do when your child isn't eating anything? What are foods that you get down their stomach? Like all those little details a parent needs to know. I found I got a lot more support from other parents than I did from our oncology team. And what was, what was the treatment plan? Like, how did that look for you guys? Cause I know that, um, I know that you guys, you know, part of the treatment plan, you couldn't actually stay in Canada. There had to be some sort of shifting around. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, of course. So Ellie's tumor was on her face. We had to do three surgeries first to try to get clear margins. We never got clear margins. So that meant we needed to also include radiation as part of our plan. Ellie started chemotherapy as soon as that last heal, that last surgery started to heal. And she did eight rounds of what's called the VAC. It's a type of chemo that children with rhabdo get. Um, the first four rounds are really, really, really intense. And the last four rounds, you drop one of the chemos and it's a little bit more, I mean, it's still chemo, Mm -hmm, but it's mm -hmm. not quite as aggressive. 
And then she needed to have 20 rounds of radiation. We don't have proton radiation in Canada. We only have photon. And when it comes to kids working on head and neck radiation, you need laser precision. Pencil, mm -hmm. I think it's called like pencil, pencil precision. So they have a few proton uh, machines in the States. So we had to relocate to Jacksonville, Florida for two months last year for her to receive radiation. Did, um, this is a, this is like a little bit, um, superfluous to the conversation, but I'm curious if, did, um, did, did she need a bolus, um, a mask, uh, or, the mask? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, she sure did. did. Was it, was it fit with somebody mm -hmm. like making it? Yep. So yeah. we, we entered, we, we actually did a, we, we produced a podcast series and we, it, we was profiling a number of companies. One of the companies, um, might as well plug it. Tay, I'm going to plug, I'm gonna like, plug Jesus it. Christ. I'm going I'm to plug it. Cause unbelievable. It, it really, it's a great yeah, skill yeah, you have. Well, just... It really wasn't, it really was an amazing conversation. So this company, <laughs> they do, they basically take, instead of, they're basically like, Hey, when you do, when you make these masks by hand, there's a ton of human error and air gaps and there's increased risk for radiation burn and, and, mm. and, you know, not getting, not getting the, the maximum efficient dose of radiation to the, to the area. And so they, they're able to take all of your cat scans and pet scans and MRI uh, imaging data and then create a 3d printed uh, mask that it, that perfectly fits you. And then for children, they have a feature with children where they can like, they can like, um, put like little notes from family members that want to no be put on the mask way. or like put dinosaurs or, or whatever, like they can put it on the mask so wow. that the kid has this like thing that's less daunting, um, of an experience for them to do. There's something fun about it. And then it also is like, it also makes the, the treatment better. Um, Anyway, it's a it's like an emerging technology from a Nova Scotian company that mm -hmm. was really that is was really cool. So mm -hmm. huge. Wow, I am like blown away right now with how cool that is because for her to get hers done, they basically take like super hot Ellie called it like spaghetti noodles, basically. Mm. And she said they have to like pull it over her face mm -hmm. and it's a horrible experience. Mm -hmm. But that is like I love that. So you show Guys, up into the room, you show up into the radiation room. And I'm instead in. of having somebody like go through this experience of like fitting it with yeah. you, you show up and they've made it for you because they just Ooh. took it from your imaging data. So you just show up in the room and they're like, here's your perfectly fitting mask and with like whatever like you want. Barbie pink or like whatever yeah. you want. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, actually, my yeah. God. Yeah. That is so, so cool. Yeah. Yes to that. I'm so, I'm so happy that you're behind that and promoting that. That is a really impressive, that's an impressive adventure. I, adventure. I am. Um, I would love to. I'd love to talk about um, your experience in navigating um, navigating this entire this entire journey and kind of like trying to juggle the things that you have control over versus the things that you don't have control over. So, like, I mean, and this is coming to mind because it's something that I'm like just working on in my own like in my own day to day life um, with with my therapist, um, and it just it came to mind because I'm thinking like, okay you know, that's, that's in my, like me walking to work, walking home, cooking dinner. And like, you know, something might come up. That's a minor inconvenience. But then when you hear an experience like this, it's like, holy shit. Okay. Well, that's, that is a, that must take this concept of like looking at the things that you have control over and, and looking at the things that you don't have control over and trying to navigate how you relate to those things that takes that and puts it onto a whole other level. So I'm just kind of curious, like, is that something that you 
uh, kind of went through on this journey of struggling with a lack of control? And what were those things that you struggled with that were, that were outside of your control versus the things that were in your control? A lot of parents find comfort in the treatment plan. As soon as their child's diagnosed, there's all of a sudden this map put in front of you and they're like, oh, okay, well, you know, week one, week two, week 50, this is what this is going to look like. Great. And parents take comfort in that. I didn't take comfort in that. To me, it looked like this, you know, daunting, impossible jail sentence. I just didn't feel that that was what I needed to have any kind of control. And then, uh, so I was already feeling total chaos, but then things got real when we found out that Ellie's biopsy stained that it might, she might have a genetic mutation. Mm. And we found this out maybe about six weeks into her chemo treatment. We found out that she might have a gene that made her chemo resistant, Mm. which would mean none of this was going to work and that relapse was inevitable and it would take us on a totally different path. When we got that information, they said we have to send her biopsy to a lab in the States and it's going to take about six or seven weeks to get the results. Talk about no control. Mm. So basically now your child's life, your child's future is in the hands of a lab tech somewhere down in the States. And you have to find a way to live and exist and raise another child and, you know, brush your teeth, do the normal life stuff while you are waiting for this monumental piece of information that would absolutely change your entire life. So talking about having control, there is none. And you are forced to learn how to live in what started with milliseconds, then seconds, then maybe 30 seconds, then maybe a minute. And that's how you have to survive. Eventually, I got to a place where I could survive in like a five minute window where I wasn't where, you know, my nervous system wasn't about to explode. It's a hard crash course in learning how life works. We never know, right? We never, ever know what's about to happen. And I got really comfortable with that way of being. What is your, um, what is your yoga background lend to Mm. that experience? Like, like when I, when you say, you know, it's a millisecond, it's a second, it's, it's 30 seconds. Like that just reminds me of, of, of like starting out in a yoga practice and like a meditation practice and trying to like string together moments of like awareness or mindfulness or stillness and how those, those moments get interrupted and broken by distraction or, um, whatever it may be. And, And like over time and with practice, those things build up and you can spend more time in the place that you'd like to. Um, yeah. Was that, was, like, was it helpful? Was it, did it lend anything to this experience? Great, great connection. The thing that helped the most would be breath. Um, not only for myself, but for Ellie as well, we incorporated so much breath work into her treatment and into my nervous system regulation. Breath was huge. 
when it, yeah, I'm trying to think about any other parallels. It's so scary. I was so scared. It was like every morning I'd wake up and there would be this vial beside my bed, this big fat needle beside my bed of fear. And I would just jab it in my leg every single morning. And I would run off of that fear. Like it was my adrenaline. It was my fuel. And I don't really know if anything would have punctured that. I don't know if anything really would have tamed that. It's after treatment when things like yoga, things like meditation can help detox you from that fear. But during treatment, you're only focused on your child's survival. Mm. And fear is the uh, way you move through the world. I don't actually think anytime during her treatment, I would have been able to go, ah, mm-hmm. like, fuck no. Yeah. It was goddamn terror the mm. whole entire time. Yeah, it was fear injected every day. Because I always think about those things in my in my life, like of going... Um, I have a, I have a hard, I have a, I have a very hard time. Um, like if, 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 if we switch roles and you asked me that question, I would have a very hard time being able to nail down if it did or if it didn't, because it's been so, it's been so entrenched. It's been so entrenched in my life from like a young age, like relatively young age. I was 20 when I started, when I started. So like, so I actually, when, when I think about that for me, I go like, actually, I don't know. It would actually be Mm -hmm. like, like you'd have, I'd have to live a separate, I'd have to live a separate life and go through the same experiences without mm-hmm. the, without that, all that experience to know mm. like what role it, what role it plays. Uh, I've been dying to know Sam about, um, you know, like Ellie's initial prognosis. So like when they do this biopsy and they're like, Oh yeah, it's, it's definitely cancer. and We know what it is. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think of a cancer diagnosis, they think of like, okay, well like, you know, like how long do I have to live? Like how, how bad is it? in air quotes. Um, what was, what was the case for Ellie? And then on top of that, the, how I I'm really curious about your communication with her and what that Ooh. conversation with mm-hmm. her actually looked like. Yeah. Ellie's cancer, because it was smack dab in the middle of her face and because we got it out in a relatively fast window, she had no spread. And because of that, her prognosis was favorable. There's two types of rhabdo. There's one that's not quite as favorable. She had embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, which is considered a little more favorable. They also take into account the location of the tumor, which for her was also a favorable location. So we left that first oncology meeting when they told us, you know, chemo, radiation, surgeries, I mean, I fainted. Don't get me wrong. Like I still was totally out. I needed like the juice and cookie cart to come in to bring me back for sure. But her prognosis was quote unquote favorable. Um, Telling her about it was. Remember how I said earlier that I, never forget the moment where I meet the people, you know, I had, I'd have to say that the moment when I told her, when we told her, my husband and I, yeah, that's a moment I'll never forget. It is, you know, we had the information, my husband and I had the information. We knew she had cancer 
And it was up to us to tell her that she had it. And so it's like, we were now living on one planet and she's still living in her world. Right. And we had to find the time, the perfect time to rip her out of that world. And for the rest of her life, knowing that for the rest of her life, she would know that mom and dad told me something that fractured my life in two. Mm. That's a huge weight to carry for a parent to know that you're about to completely change the course of your child's life. So we really, I mean, my God, it was a very difficult conversation to have. She was devastated. And her first reaction was to go for a walk by herself. At 10 years old, she said, I, I got to go for a walk. And that's something she'd never done before. But we were like, okay, go for a walk. And she did. She went out into nature. And we live in a very, you know, tree, foresty area. And she went with no shoes because it was summer. And she just walked through the trees. And I don't know what happened during that walk. One day I'll ask her. But whatever it was, was her absorbing that information. It was her, um, you know, entering into this new world. I don't know what happened, but I'll ask her. Mm -hmm. I, 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 we've talked about this a number of times on the show, um, whether it pertains to um, sex or death or illness, um, which are all like really heavy topics to talk, talk to a young human about um and you know like i've i've heard i've heard people say through various conversations like oh well like you know the appropriate time to talk to your child about sex is you know this age or whatever or the appropriate time to talk to your child about death is this age um but the you know which which i i i i typically disagree with whatever that person says that age is i typically disagree unless the age that they say is as soon as they understand right. words. Um, but the importance there is that the language that is used is uh, appropriate and like, um, you know, digestible for that age. And, and on top of that, the conversation isn't a one-time thing. It's something that happens at every sort of iteration of the evolution of that human so that the language becomes more mature and more, you know, more, uh, rich and and heavier, you know, giving them more information to be be able to like download and and take take from that. Um, so, with that said, you know, being sort of forced to have to have this conversation with Ellie, what did that look like between you and your husband about you know how to navigate that conversation, what things to say, how to say it, what not to say? Um, how did you navigate that? And then, you know is this something that's going to, you know, a conversation that you see kind of unfolding over and over again over the next few years as she be continues to evolve and grow and mature? I'm going to ask you a question after I just answer the first part of this, but I, I want to ask you as well. But when we navigated how we would tell her, honestly, we were in such shock. We were out of our minds. And I wish I could say that I spent the time to really make it age appropriate and to make this palatable and digestible for her. I wish I could say that. And by the way, don't get me wrong. Like I did look out, I did reach out to parents and ask, 
how on earth do you do this? And everyone was kind of like, uh, mm. you just do. And it's true. Like there's some things that you can prepare for. That's not one of them. Telling your 10 year old that they have cancer doesn't come in like any parenting guide. Right. So we had to base it on our relationship with her, our knowledge of her, our connection with her, which by the way, is very, very, very strong. And we had to just trust that the words coming out of our mouth were going to make sense. We didn't know what they would be. Mm. We opened our mouths, words came out. Thank God they landed. That's really all I can say. Like mm. there was no planning, no navigating. Um, I mean, we didn't tell her prognosis. We didn't tell her that, you know, at first we didn't even tell her she'd lose her hair. We took it in little bites. We mm. started with the word cancer and we called chemo medicine. That was our word for it. So you're going to need to get medicine. She needed to get a port. She needed more surgeries. So we took those off in little bites. But when you ask about how the conversation evolves over time, I was thinking about this last night when I was listening to your interview with Dr. Gabor Mate. And Jer, you were saying how you had so much resentment and a lot of feelings around how your parents dealt with your diagnosis and the information that they shared with you at your age and that they didn't share with you and how this now in your adult life has, you know, really impacted you and how you have a lot of feelings around this. And I was thinking to myself, oh my God, have we done that to Ellie? Are there things that I should be telling her that I haven't because I'm trying to protect her? Are there things that I shouldn't have told her because it's now traumatized her? You know, coming from a parent, you have no idea what they're going to absorb and what they're not going to absorb. You think you're doing the right thing, mm. but there are so many things that I haven't told her because her way of dealing with her cancer is to just like need to know basis. Mm -hmm. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to get all feely, you know, mushy about it. I want to get this done and over. I'd love to sit with her and analyze the, you know, metaphors and the spiritual, like what is going through your mind, Ellie? What? No, none of it. So I actually need to know or want to know from you, like, what would you do? You know, mm -hmm. like if, if you had 10 year old Jer there, what would you have told him about his diagnosis? Mm. Yeah. Well, it, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, I, it explains, it, it explains, uh, a text that I received from my mom that I was kind of like, what, why did I get this? Uh, <laughs> she listened to the episode. She listened to the episode yesterday. <laughs> so yeah, uh, we, uh, for folks that don't know, um, whether it's new listeners or people that just, you know, haven't been keeping up to date, we, uh, this week, as recording this, we released our episode with with Dr. Gabor Mate, and uh, my mom must have listened to it yesterday because she texted me this yesterday. Um, mom, I hope you're cool with me just reading your text out loud on a podcast. Uh, she said, "Canceled." Uh, Love you and happy we talked about things years ago. I want to read his book for sure. Amazing individual. I am always here to talk to you about anything. I want you to know that heart, heart. Um, and I think, I think that text right there is actually like a, a great example of what was needed at that time. Right. So 
um, you know, Sam, I don't think that, I don't think that you, you should worry about having fucked up this situation with Ellie because you've had the conversation, right? You had the conversation. She was 10. When I found out this information, I was 10. I found out on my own. I didn't have the conversation with my parents. They never told me. That conversation never took place until 10 years later when I was 20. Um, but what I needed back then when I was 10 was the door to be open for that conversation to be had. Um, actually, I'll say this. I, what I needed at 10 was A, to have the conversation, and then B, even if I wasn't interested in it, to know that the door was open mm -hmm. to, to deepen that conversation further if I needed to. Mm -hmm. But I didn't even ha have the option, right? So I think that the fact that you had the conversation with Ellie, that's the, that's, the, that's the number one biggest point right now. And then moving forward, as long as she's aware, sure, like maybe, maybe, she, maybe she'll never want to talk about it, and that's fine. But as long as she's aware that the door is open, to talk about it in any capacity that she wants to at any point in her journey, then that like, that's the important mm. part. But there, there needs to be constant reminders of, of that too. Sure. Um, I mean, and, 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 and maybe not necessarily like constant, like every, you no, know, no, no, once no, a month being like, Hey, we're like, we can talk whenever you want to talk, but it's just like, just having the, just, just, you know, having the, the door open and, communicating that in whatever way that doesn't come across as like, Oh mom, leave me alone. Or, I, you know, whatever. I, yeah. I have some thoughts on this too, because, um, my mom had cancer and, um, it was, it was interesting because we had just started doing sick boy when she was diagnosed. And it just so happened that, uh, CBC was doing a documentary about the podcast at the time. And the director who became a friend of ours said to me, during the recording, he was like, do you think you're going to have a conversation with your mom about her cancer? And I was like, I think that, you know, like, I think, I think we've kind of talked about things, but up until that point, we just talked about like the sort of logistics of her cancer treatment, but not about how she was doing emotionally. And he encouraged me a few times to have the more emotional conversation. And so we did. And one of the things that I think was really helpful um, and has been helpful on an ongoing basis um, for my mom and I's relationship is one, creating that space to know that she can talk to me about those things. But I think something that I learned that was really helpful was that she told me that um, she oftentimes will look to her cousin for emotional support and for me, knowing that my mom had someone to talk about that, even if it wasn't necessarily me and, you know, she was still tr trying to protect me in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like I feel a certain level of comfort that she does have that emotional support if she needs someone to talk to. And so like you, do, you don't necessarily have to be that person mm. for yeah. your person, but knowing that they do have a person, I think mm -hmm. can be incredibly comforting on its own. Oh my God. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. You're so right. You're so right. And, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I like, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying that because I think as a parent, you take on this role of being there, everything, right. And you're not, in fact, you can't be, I, you can't be. Yeah. I was listening to this great parenting podcast 
about the importance of actually becoming irrelevant to your children Mm -hmm. because we eventually become a threat to their survival, right? Like if we stay wiping their butts their whole lives, what kind of adults are they going to be? So it's actually our role, even though our ego so badly wants them to be coming to us for everything, right? Because we're their parent. A proper parenting relationship should really be about letting your child go. Like it Mm -hmm. should really be the longest breakup of your life. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Brian, thank you for saying that because yeah, Ellie might meet a friend one day who she feels like a deep connection with and want to open up about it. As long as it's being processed, doesn't have to be with me. It can be with one of the dogs even. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but that's such a good point. I think I love you. Thank you. I love you too. And and I, I think something that's really valuable too is looking at how you model that openness in your own life to show yeah. her that it, that is something that is important and valuable. Like, you know, like how you speak to your partner and how you speak to other people in your life because she'll look to that and go, oh, fuck, I get it. <laughs> like, yeah, I need to do that. And whether you're the person on the receiving end of that or, or it's somebody else that she's really close with, mm-hmm. um, she'll see that. I feel like that, that, um, that conversation, that, that thought, not necessarily like in the, in the, like obviously applicable to the conversation that you had around cancer with your daughter, but in something that we talked about, I think in that same realm with, uh, Gabor was like, I feel like we are, we are this generation of people having children that are like, that are so tuned in to the things Mm. that we are doing and saying that could result in it's like it's like when i say this like how is that branching their life off into this like new direction and you're trying and it's it can be like overwhelming to think of the trillion ways that you could be throwing their life into another trajectory because of this thing you did or this thing you said um but kind of like similar to what jer said like that that idea that like you're you're leaving the door that you're leaving the door open Mm -hmm. um and like, and then again to what Brian said, like leaving the door open, not just to you, but like showing that the door can be open to you or to the dog or to the best friend or, mm-hmm. or, you know, to the school counselor or like, you know, whoever, mm-hmm. um, whoever they feel like they want to, you know, connect with on whatever the hard thing is. Like Gabor said, the very thought of thinking about that mm-hmm. puts you ahead yeah, of, yeah, a, right. of a yeah. lot of other places. Yes. Yeah, just thinking yeah. about thinking is, is kind of a, a big step. <laughs> So I, much thinking. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm just just out of like curiosity. Um, uh, my my sister, my, you know, my my two nephews, who they're they're just like they're just the fucking cutest, and I love them so much. And and you know, every not not long ago, I got a, I received a text from my sister about you know one of the little guys just uh, going through like a, a, a an experience of bullying through school, and I was just mm. like, I'm so fucking heartbroken. And mm. My, my, my sister's, she's, she's an incredible mom and, and she, she ended up, um, she ended up putting her children in, into therapy. And I was like, that's a mm-hmm. fuck yeah. Like, man, how amazing is that? Uh, I wish, I wish I had that when I was, when I was a kid. Um, is that something that you've kind of like talked about or thought about? Like, is that, is that in oh. the, the sort of. I'm never not in therapy. I'll just put it th- <laughs> yeah. out that that's like a fact. I've never not been in therapy and as soon as Ellie was diagnosed, I found her the most amazing therapist. Am I allowed to say names here? Yeah. Is that fine? Yeah. Elizabeth Doherty. Oh, I mean, she is a social worker who has worked in the palliative world 
the cancer palliative world for over 20 years. Hmm. Uh, I don't have the words. I just don't have the words. So I won't even try to explain how she somehow was able to communicate with Ellie at her level and help her to make sense of what was going on. So I had Ellie talk to Elizabeth towards the end of treatment and way after treatment too. Like as we were sort of reintegrating into our lives after treatment, Elizabeth helped her so much. I cannot recommend not only having someone for your child to talk to, um, but Elizabeth, Elizabeth Doherty, her website's awesome. She's amazing. She's a gift to sort of the, the bereaved, traumatized palliative world. Adults and children, by the way. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, therapy for sure. We're also, and I mean, I might just lose a lot of people here. I don't know. But we're also big into homeopathy. I have an incredible um, homeopathic doctor who helps us with a lot of our uh, nervous system stuff. And so he was a big, he was a huge advocate as well. Jason Devine, amazing homeopath. We loved him as well. I'm, I'm so in terms of like, yeah, in terms of uh, like alternative, like outside things, outside of the, you know, oncology world, those were the two things we reser- we accessed the most. Uh, I'm, re- I'm really curious about the conversation of getting a kid into therapy um, from my own personal experience. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was 15 and mm. um my brother, I think, first experienced a lot of anger around my parents' divorce. And I remember my mom saying, like, you should talk to someone. Like, let's let's get you into a therapist. And, like, the idea of that, like, both of us, I think, at the time were incredibly resistant to it. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way to, like, to navigate that as a parent to... Mm. To enable your kid to feel comfortable around the idea Especially of doing knowing that? Especially that, knowing that it's probably going to meet resistance, but knowing that it's knowing that it will help totally like how do you but you don't want to force yeah yeah that's a great question i think because my therapy is such a normal big part of my life i mean i will shoo my kids out of the house all the time saying i have a therapy appointment beat it and so they've heard about therapy they know it's a big normal thing that mom does all the time so it's already part of our language and then but to get Ellie into it, because she's not like me, she's a little, she's more like her dad. She's more internal. So to get her comfortable with it, I set up a space for her. So got her all the things she wanted. And this is going to sound super cheesy, but like got her a Stanley. Cause by the way, she's like a full tween now. So these are the things. Oh yeah. <laughs> so hot so right she, now. she could like have her cup beside her, got her the laptop, got her the ring light. Like she wanted all of these for her specifically, she needed to feel like it was a bit of a fuss. And so whatever, I was like, yeah. anything you need to make you feel like this is your time, you want like, you know, cushy chairs and whatever you want. So I did that for her because I knew that would work for her. So mm-hmm. I think it was just like making making a space feel really accessible for, for a kid. And um, also trusting that the professional that you hire knows how to deal with kids. So I think for the first few sessions with Elizabeth, they just colored mm. and they just, you know, softened to each other. And then she's a pro, like she's such a pro. She knows exactly how to do it. That's awesome. Did you, um, did you meet with Elizabeth beforehand and, yes. and like get the, make sure that the vibe was right? 
A thousand percent. Yes. Cool. She wouldn't have done it without. She she insists on speaking to the parents. I think I spoke with Elizabeth like three or four times before she even met Ellie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So for sure the vibe had to be had to be good. That's really that's that's amazing. I like I personally um can't stop talking about therapy. I think uh Taylor and Jerry <laughs> get tired of it. Uh it's okay. But, yeah. But I, I we just let it happen. I, <laughs> I'm I feel like that's something that I haven't thought of is, is, is like the fact that I, there's this thing that works really well for me and I, I, I find it adds a lot of value to my life. And I hope that someday, you know, when I have kids that continuing to do that, um, could eventually show them that that is, if that's something that they feel might be helpful for them, that, that it will create a space where they feel like that's a normal thing for an adult to do. Mm. Absolutely. You know, my parents were also divorced when I was, I was way younger. 15 is a rough age. That's a, whew, that's a tough age. Yep. <laughs> I was young, but for some reason, my mom, like in the eighties thought I need to get her into therapy right away. So I've actually been going since I think I was five or six years old wow. and it wasn't trendy back then. It wasn't like thing you did with your kid, but I really attribute a lot of this to my mom for just knowing somehow to get me into it because I now think of it as like going to the gym or going to yoga class. Like it's so normal and part of your life that, um, I hope that that's passed on to my kids too, but I think it's so great. Listen, yeah. You want to talk about therapy? I'll go there with you any old time. (laughs) I'm sure, um, I'm sure therapy probably plays a, plays a role in this. Um, in, you know, it sounds like, um, it sounds like, you know, Ellie had a, a, a good prognosis. She went through treatment. Um, I'm making an assumption that things have, have sort of, uh, you assume the, the correct. cloud has, the cloud has uh, dissipated. Um, yeah. and I'm curious about that transition, that transition for you, um, and your husband as, as parents, like making that transition from, from being in the deep sea to, yeah. to, to, you know, does it, do, does it ever feel like you leave and you're back on land, you know, or do you, you know, is there like the lingering sort of, you know, will it come back or, or, you know, or what, like, how do you make that transition from like, you're in it and then things are starting to shift back to some version of normal that you had before the diagnosis? Everyone thinks that when they ring the bell, it's over. And that can't be farther from the truth. And I know that every cancer parent will say that will agree with me on this, that when the kids ring the bell, that's when shit gets real for the parents and the caregivers. Because like I said before, that injection of fear that I was sticking into my leg every single day to survive, I don't need to inject it in anymore. And so honestly, that time after Ellie rang the bell felt like I'm assuming what it would feel like to come off of heroin. It is a deep and dark detox. You are walking around your world as a stranger, as a foreigner. You don't know your reflection. (laughs) You don't know how to get dressed in the morning. It is like fetal position for weeks. And it takes so much work for me. I needed to be medicated. I needed to be in a lot of therapy and I needed to ride it hard. It was awful because 
like you're going at such a pace and everything is for your child during their treatment, by the way, as it should be like, there's no question I would have ever done it a different way. Right. Mm -hmm. But after treatment is done and she's ostensibly like back to her quote unquote normal, she goes to school and you're like, I exist. (laughs) Right. It felt like one of the therapists that I love as well. Um, Laura Pasqualino, incredible therapist who I also spoke to said that it feels like putting on a big fur coat, walking into a pool and moving around. Imagine that heaviness of like wearing a drenched fur coat. That was what it felt like to walk through the world. Like you are wearing a hundred pounds of extra weight. Guys, it was dark. Mm. It was really, really dark. So I think a lot of families after treatment, that's when the lasagnas need to keep Mm. coming. That's when Mm. the 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 texts and the phone calls and the support uh, typically ends. But to me, it's when it should be ramping up. It's, a, it's like, it sounds like it, like, especially when you started describing that, I was like, Oh shit, that sounds like what people, how, how I've heard people describe getting out of prison after being exactly. in prison for like 20 years. Mm-hmm. They're like, exactly. like I don't know, more. they're like, I don't know how to operate in this, in this, in, in this environment where, where I don't have to be in fight or flight at every single moment of my life. Cause they were making lasagna for you the whole time. Right. My mom said the same thing. And she said the hardest part was like the supports from like the professional systems and things. end, and they're like, mm-hmm. you're good. And they just kind of like see you off. And they're like, it's like they've physically fixed you. But then like mentally yeah. you're so broken and down, but it feels like it's impossible to come back yeah. from that moment without continuing to get help. I, I mean, to that point, and this is something that I thought about bringing up when the recording was over, um, just to talk to you sort of off mic about it. But I, but I think this actually is like a probably a good opportunity to bring it up because perhaps it's it would be helpful for somebody out there who's like, whether it's, you know, going through something that you similar that you've gone through, Sam, or or maybe, you know, somebody out there who has gone through what Ellie has gone through when they were a child and and are now a little bit older and there's still maybe that like lack of, you know, support, that support system that or maybe mm. they just never had it. Um, I used to I used to do this work with this organization called um, Athletes for Cancer. And they they're they're, you know, they're a charity that raise money for cancer um, awareness and cancer treatment. Um, but they also uh, they also run these camps for young adult cancer survivors, and so um, I got involved essentially, kind of doing what you used to do for for Moksha for Moto, uh, you know, facilitating these teacher trainings. Well, I was like a facilitator for these camps, and um, it was it was such a fucking incredible experience. Um, it I felt. I felt at a place at first cause I didn't, I was like, why, why am I here? Like what, you know, what do I have to offer here? Um, but, uh, but either way it ended up becoming this like incredible experience that I just continued to do time and time again. Um, the camps were specifically for young adult cancer survivors. Um, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were for people that had cancer when they were a young adult. Um, there were people that were at these camps that had childhood cancers that were survivors. Um, and you know, they were people between the ages of, uh, I believe it was like 18 to, to, to 
35, somewhere in that range. I could be wrong there, but, um, and there were two, two or three different types of camps. So the camps that I, that I took part in were, um, one was a, was a, a surf camp in Maui. Oh, wow. Um, and then the other one was a ski and snowboard camp at, in, uh, in Mount Hood in Oregon. And it would consist of bringing together all of these young, ad, young adults who have gone through a cancer diagnosis. Some of them are still in their journey of cancer. Some of them have, you know, rang that bell fucking 10 years ago. And it would be a group, a small group, like, you know, uh, 15 people. And we would come together and we would spend our evenings around a campfire and we would share and we would talk and we would, oh, you know, wow. uh, we would just like, you know, just, just come together to like share experience. And actually, you know what, here's a, a little like kind of peek behind the curtain uh, here at, at Sick Boy. There's a question that we ask all of our guests who have lived the experience or, or, you know, in your case, have lived the experience of being a caretaker. And the question is, what's the biggest thing that your blah, blah, blah has taken away from you? What's the biggest thing that your, you know, your, your cancer diagnosis took away from you? And then the second part is, what's the biggest thing that your cancer diagnosis has given you? And that question, I got that question from those campfire chats. Mm, I actually brought it into the, yeah, brought, yeah, I don't even think you guys knew that. So brought it into the podcast because, it, off as because it was a such a fucking incredible question for these people that oftentimes are coming to these camps and some of them are really, are doing really great. You know, some of them have like processed this really well and they're in a really good place and they just want to like let loose and, and find companionship and support. But some of them are there and they still haven't come to grips with the fact that they have oh, yeah. or had cancer. And it's, you know, whether it's they're in it now or they had it 15 years ago and it's still fucking them up. And that question was like a question that you could see in real time sometimes would reframe the way that they viewed their experience. It was so, so fucking profound. Oh, I'm starting to... It was just so beautiful to witness. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is because um, I, I was curious about whether or not, Sam, this is something that you have thought about or if you were even aware exists because Camp Koru or Athletes for Cancer, they, um, they are one of fucking hundreds of programs like this. And I know in Canada, there's one called Campfire Circle and it's in Ontario. Um, and it's like a, it's like a week long overnight camp. Yeah. Ellie, Ellie's been amazing. Sweet. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Perfect. So can, with that then, can you maybe for, for folks out there that, um, maybe, you know, a, a, a caregiver to a child who has a cancer diagnosis or had, and maybe they aren't aware, can you tell us about, you know, what that camp was like, what, you know, how, how it felt for you guys, how Ellie felt about it. Was it helpful? Was it not? Um, yeah, just a little bit of insight from like someone yeah, who's been sure. involved with it. By the way, Jer, I am as moved as as you are, and I'm sure you all are when you see in you see the proof of you know the people who have overcome our deepest fears. And they can find something in that experience to be grateful for. Mm. To me, it is the most 
profound sacred moment and those conversations that you have with people when they're sharing those those lessons that they've learned um i am so it's such an honor right it's such an honor to be part of those conversations so i'm equally moved with you uh campfire circle is a brilliant gift to children and families it is i'm going to give you i'm going to put it into our I'm going to give you our context mm-hmm. and our sort mm-hmm. of little story about it. So Ellie had to wear a wig. Okay. And she lost her hair during treatment and she had to wear a wig. And this wig became her uh, security blanket. I mean, she wouldn't go anywhere without this wig. It was ugly. It was horrible. It looked like a wig. You knew it was a wig. Mm-hmm. She didn't care. It was going with her everywhere. She would she, anywhere. I cannot stress how this was like part of her, her being. Right. And she refused to take it off despite the fact that her hair was slowly growing back. She wasn't ready yet. Again, just for context, we're now at a like 11, 12 year old little girl. Mm-hmm. Like this stuff matters. Mm-hmm. Campfire circle. She was on her way to go and I, she was wearing the wig and I was like, Ellie, you're going to be swimming in lakes. You're going to be on, you know, rope walls, rock walls. What are you doing bringing this big, long wig with you? It was out of the question. Like she was bringing it. This was happening no matter what. We get to Campfire Circle. It's about a two and a half hour drive from where we live. We're pulling in. Oh. <laughs> and she sees all these kids just like her. And they're at all stages of treatment and they are wearing tutus and cowboy hats and they have, you know, these pool noodles and they're shaking them all at the car as we're driving up. And it was just like this experience that she's never had before. And I don't know if you guys ever saw that video, that blind melon video Mm. of all the bees Mm -hmm. and the little girls looking everywhere for her bees Mm -hmm. and in her bee costume. And she finds all the other bees. It was exactly that scene she found all her other little bees. And so she took off the wig and it was the first time I'd seen her head at all during her entire treatment. I'd never once seen her head and she took it off and she left the car and went and had the best 10 days of her whole entire life because she was with her people and she hasn't put it back on since that was it. Uh, That was it. No rain is the blind melon song. And for anyone who doesn't know Mm -hmm. that video, uh, probably one of the best songs, uh, from the Mm nineties, one of the fucking cutest videos from the nineties. Um, loved it at the, um, big shiny tunes night. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, which is coming up this weekend. What? Uh, yeah, we can talk about that after. Um, (laughs) I, I do want to say, uh, I'm just making note here that, uh, for folks, for folks listening, uh, it, you know, check the, check the show notes of this episode. Uh, there will be a link there for the Rabdo Facebook group that, um, that Sam has mentioned. There will be a link there for, uh, Campfire Circle and everything that they do there as well. Um, uh, and you know, we, we're, we're kind of, we're over time, but I, I, you know, Sam, if you, if you have the time, I would love to just take a, another few moments here with you to talk about the the uh the deep sea pod um so it is it is fresh it's fucking yeah. fresh folks uh the podcast launched earlier this month february 2nd um it is out now wherever you find fine podcasts 
and I would just, you know, I guess like to start off, um, you know, you mentioned the story earlier of Tara, um, basically telling you, okay, you're drowning. You're, you need to become a fish. Um, and I know that the podcast was born from that idea of like, okay, I gotta, I gotta swim. I gotta figure out how I need to find support. And the podcast was born from this idea. Tell us about the podcast. What's its purpose? Who are the people that you are looking to talk to on the podcast? Um, maybe, maybe even like a call to action. Anybody listening to this right now, like if there's somebody out there listening who could be a part of this, this podcast, a part of these conversations, who are those people? Um, give us, give us like, you know, the, the whole lowdown on the deep sea and what it is and what it means to you. The podcast is for all the other fish. The podcast is for all of the parents and the caregivers and the families and the communities that have been affected by childhood cancer. It's a really lonely place. It's a really dark and scary place to get thrown. All of the focus and attention during a child's treatment is going to the kid as it should be. No one's saying it shouldn't a hundred percent. Every ounce and fiber of your being is towards your child's survival. However, we as caregivers also need a place to connect. And it is a place where we can share our stories. It's that old ritual of sitting around a kitchen table. What we're doing right now, we're talking about our stories and sometimes they're unbearable. Sometimes they're uncomfortable. Sometimes they are so hard to hear, but they will always reflect the conversations you're already having in your head. And I really believe that the way that we can best save our children is to also save ourselves. And when we come together in community, we're doing just that. When you find out you're not alone in a deep, dark place, you can kind of breathe a little again. And that's what I want to do with this podcast is to give parents and caregivers a place where they can feel seen and witnessed. And maybe through that, they'll get to exhale, mm. even if it's just a little bit, but I promise you that the more conversations that you listen to of people who are in the exact same situation you're in, you will feel seen and you won't feel alone. And that's the goal. Amazing. How, you know, I know that you've, you like, as we're recording this, it hasn't technically come out. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but, and I know that, you know, anyone who, anyone who started a podcast before, the proper way to do it is to make sure that you have a good buffer of episodes before you yeah. launch your show so that you're not uh, drowning uh, mm -hmm. when, when that episode, when that show drops and you're like, fuck, I need more episodes and I'm on a weekly schedule here. So you've had, you know, you've had upwards of 10 recordings so far uh, mm -hmm. prior to the launch. I know it's really early, but how has that process been for you? You know, is this, is this for context, like sick boy, even before, before we ever really talked about it, there was no plan for sick boy. It really, it really just like naturally organically formed into what it, what it's become. But pretty soon after starting it, um, a big sort of aha moment for me was realizing that like, Oh fuck, like a, this is, this is now my, I've never felt like a patient advocate, but now I do. And this is how I'm going to advocate for CF. Um, and, and it's also become my therapy. Like, you know, I, I mean, I only started therapy this year 
um, uh, personally. And so for the last almost decade, my therapy was this show. Um, what has the deep sea been for you since you started down this project? At first I thought it would be really sad. I, I wanted to do it so badly because I knew that it, there was a need for this type of connection amongst caregivers, but I was worried that I would constantly be just brought back into that really dreadful, dark place. And the opposite happened. It has been so uplifting and life affirming. I did an episode with a mom who was bereaved, who is bereaved. She lost her son. And yeah, we cried. We mm-hmm. cried a lot during that episode, but you know what else we did? We laughed. And I cannot count how many times she used the word beautiful when she was describing her son passing in her arms. Mm -hmm. She used Mm -hmm. the word beautiful over and over and over again. Hearing a mother talk about the most devastating thing that could possibly happen to a parent, having her describe it as something beautiful took away my fear took away my darkness and it and it gave me a whole new lens to look through. So is it sad to talk about childhood cancer all the time? Fuck yeah. It's mm-hmm. terrible. But the flip side is so beautiful that I wouldn't miss it for the world and I know it comes across in every interview. You can't not hear the flip side as well. There's not one parent. It doesn't matter how dark and horrible their child's experience was. There's not one parent who can't tell you that they learned and came out with such a beautiful new perspective on life. Mm. I, uh, I, uh, Sam, I, you know, I, I said it at the top. Um, you're one of those people who are, you're 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 an unforgettable unforgettable and and you know just uniquely special human and i'm so grateful that uh, i ended up on a path in life that led me to meeting you through family um and i think that uh i'm i'm going to speak for the listeners of the show and say that uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of people listening to this right now that also have a, a very similar feeling, a, a feeling of gratitude for having taken whatever path they've taken in their life that's led them to this moment right now where they are listening to this episode and feeling like a, you know, a genuine, uh, although, you know, parasocial relationship uh, with you. And I want to thank you for for taking the time of your schedule to offer that opportunity for those people and to, uh, to just, you know, have an effect on, on the three of us and on everybody that listens because you have a way with words and, and it's really profound. It's really powerful. And I'm just so fucking grateful that we have this platform to be able to have conversations with caregivers like yourself, because uh, you're amazing. And, and I love you. And I love you guys. I love you, Jared. That is the nicest thing to hear. I really, really appreciate that. And I, I feel the exact same way. I am so blown away. I'm so blown away by what you have all done and 
the community that you've created, it is a massive inspiration to me, humongous inspiration to me that, you know, 14, 13 years ago, we were on a hammock <laughs> in a weird Brazilian jungle. And now here we are. Yeah. And how cool is it that life has mm. brought us here? So I appreciate that. And I feel the exact same way about you. How can people find you? How can people find the podcast? You know, I know that the podcast has a social media account. Uh, plug away. So the plugging is not that much because to be honest with you, all I have right now is an Instagram account where it's mainly families. Like it's a mainly families in the oncology world. The podcast is going to be everywhere you can get your podcast, the deep sea podcast, diving into childhood cancer. And it will likely be weekly. And it's not just for cancer parents. I also interview therapists. I also interview social workers. I interview people who were in our bubble who supported us just to give people sort of a little framework or a little map on how they can tell their community to support them. So it's not just every episode about another person's um, experience. However, I will say that the episodes are geared to the caregiver, not to the child's treatment. So it's very rare that we'll talk about chemo cocktails and treatment plans. I leave that sort of out of it just because I want us as caregivers to have a place to talk. We talk about chemo all the time. We don't need to do it on this podcast, right? So it's really for the people who are feeling like they need that extra support and uh, they need to find their other fish. Oh, hi. Who's that? It's Donut. He's been asleep the whole donut. time. And then he hi, heard, donut. And he heard the deep sea and he was like, oh, fuck yeah, I'm subscribing today, right now. And hit subscribe <laughs> and leave a rating bro. and a review. That, thank you, Donut. That's exactly what oh, we look. do. And now the dog next door heard it too. <laughs> oh, I love it. So yeah, honestly, if anyone is um, interested and wants to come and share their story and talk and be part oh. of the podcast... Find me. I guess the best place right now would be just to come to the at the deep sea podcast on Instagram and DM me there. Once we get a little bit more sophisticated and fancy, we'll have more channels to communicate. But right now, that's that's the one. Sam, awesome. uh, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been really, really beautiful and amazing. So thank you for for everything. Jer, Taylor, Brian, you guys are the best. Thank you. Thank you so much for this time. I had the best time. And donut. <laughs>
Please never doubt that. Thank you again, sick boy, for having me. I loved every second of our conversation. I'd also love to give a huge thanks to my friend Ian Blackwood for his beautiful song, Carry Me to Water. Thank you to my friend Kate Mitzi for her logo design. And most of all, thank you to my little girl who taught me that the deeper you dive into the darkness of the ocean, the more buried treasure you will find. Until next time, that's where you'll find me.